Pop it like it's hot. Pop it like it's hot. And we're pouring Shandong like it's got it going on. Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to talk about newcomers in wine and classical music, and we'll elaborate more in a few minutes. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. And supporting us by donating on patreon.com, let's be honest. Hi, Jill Mott. How's it going, Emily Reese? It's going good. It's summer suddenly in Minnesota. It's great. I'm doing great because... I didn't even ask you. Courtesy... Well, I'm just <laughs> telling you. Courtesy of your friend. Uh, I guess Tiki... Lopsicles. Tiki Lopsicles. Tiki Lopsicles. Are in our near future. Yeah. Just going to make life really great. That's in a few days. Today, we're going to talk about newcomers. Newcomers. I'm really excited. There were so many different avenues in the wine sector I could go with this. I could have gone with like new winemakers, but that seemed, I don't know, kind of obvious. And so I decided to go with a a way of using your labels in a really cool, artistic um and kind of, kind of tosses the way that people market uh, wines on its head a little bit, and then a new style, a, a newish style of wine that is not really too readily found out there. Um, nice. And you know, it, it will definitely—it's already found momentum. It'll find even more momentum. But right now, you really have to be in certain markets to have it. So, okay, that's what I'm going to sh- talk about. What are you going to talk about? My criteria was basically: Are they breathing? And if they have written classical music for stage. So we're, we're going to hear from uh, one tremendously popular classical composer who's still alive. We'll hear from uh, one composer who is uh, fairly, well, they're all well-known in some way, shape, or form. But in terms of global popularity, we're going to hit one of the biggies and then uh, talk about a couple others that you may or may not have heard of and listen to some music that's been composed in the last 10 years or so. Okay, so newer composers meaning, you know, yeah, we're not going to talk about Bach and we're not going to talk yeah, about Mahler. Yeah, they're breathing yeah. still. Okay, love that. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, what do we want to, what do we want to, do we want to um, bust into drinking right away? Do we want to listen right away? I could go either either way. Let's drink. That's yep. what I have to say. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. Here's my glass. All right. One new thing in wine that's not really new is called piquet. Piquet has been around since the time of the Greeks and Romans, and it's you're basically you're using rests of after pressing, so pomace, so the grape, you know, skins, the if there are stems, seeds, you're using those and you're rehydrating them with water. So now you're you're getting water that's sweet and has a little bit of the, the esters and, and tannins and grapes, and you're re- you're refermenting that, and you're left with what we would call in the industry like a low wine, like a low alcohol wine, and that's something that has been associated with, like I said, Greeks and Romans, but more for like the purpose of you know they would feed that to slaves 
as opposed to the regal stuff that they were, you know, people with more money were drinking. And then fast forward into the last few hundred years or so, peasants that either A, couldn't afford wine, or B, you know, they would make enough wine for a certain amount of time, but they wanted wine to last them until the, the next year. They would make a piquette. They'd, some people would make a piquette for them, and they'd sell their wine because it's worth more money. And nowadays, sour beers are all the rage. Um, funky wines and pet nets are all the rage. So folks th that are making in a net more natural wine vein have decided, well, why not revitalize this style where we can use leftovers, yeah. we can sell it, and we can make something that people can maybe drink a half bottle of or even a bottle of and not feel bad because it's literally they verge between 6% alcohol all the way up to like, you know, 11% alcohol is a really high alcohol peak. And in this, this today, I wanted to focus on a producer called Old Westminster. They're out of, um, they're about 45 minutes away from just northwest of Baltimore. And they make a wine called Blinded by the Light. Um, and I'll tell everybody what it is in a second, but what do you think of how it looks? Uh, it's beautiful. It's yellow, a golden yellow. Uh, it's just, it's very pretty. Looks and like it, pear juice. Sure. Unfiltered. It mm -hmm. poured, it was fizzy when we poured it. Um, and this yeah. is 2019, so brand new, brand new vintage. What Old Westminster has done, they make a lot of, um, a lot of natural wine. They make some things that are not in wholeheartedly natural, like they might filter something that goes into cans, but they make a lot of natural wine. And this is really cool because they've taken 50% Piquet Blanc. So something that's sour, lower alcohol. They've taken 30% of Gruner Veltliner. So that's an Austrian grape that they've decided to grow on their soils there. And then 20% Vidal Blanc, which is a hybrid, um, which is so they're, it's a grape that in theory is not known as being as noble as Vitis vinifera, meaning Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Franc, in this case, Gruner Veltliner. So Vidal is thought to be less noble, yet if you're making it in a natural vein and you're blending it with something really old school and sour and low ABV, something that's noble, I don't know, it gets a whole nother mind of its own, really. There's no sulfites. There's no SO2 wow. added to this. So I don't know. Chin Chin just scores and pours. Cheers. What do you think of this? What do you think of the nose? I think it smells like honey bread. I love Ooh. it. Yeah, I could see like a honey soda bread or something. Yeah. yeah. It smells like I want to just pour it all Bay over. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I thought. Like, it does. Dump my face in it. All right, well, yes. I'll be the cow that dips its head into the bucket first. Let's go. Okay. Tart. Whoa. <gasps> yeah, it tastes like. That is what I would call high acidity. Yeah, for, that's a great point. Wow. Super high acidity. It's dry. Yeah. It tastes like a sweet tart without the sweets. Yeah. And, w and without being like candy. It tastes like yeah. if fresh fruit could be a sweet tart. Yes. But have no sugar. Yeah. This is baller. It's super fun. It's 10% yeah. alcohol, unfined and unfiltered, and great work. They they have a lot of different names, a lot of cool stuff for for different wines that they make and can stuff, but this is Blinded by Lights, obviously named after the, the tune by Bruce Springsteen. Madman drummers, bombers, and Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat. In the dumps with the mumps as the adolescent pumps his way into his head. Yeah, just a cool, cool endeavor all the way around. Do you like it? I know the first sip is like, whoa, but after you've had a sip it's or two? really refreshing. I love it. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I like sour stuff a lot. So this is like, this is like 
a natural adult version of a Sour Patch Kid without the weed or acid. It reminds me of when you get done with a bike ride, you could like chug a couple sips of a beer, but you don't really chug wine. You know, this I could like take a couple gulps of this. Mm-hmm. This is like gulpable mm-hmm. wine. Yeah. Which Piquette is, they, they used to call Piquette Farmer Fizz, you know, like. Yeah. So. Uh, I love I'm, it. I'm it's glad you love amazing. it. amazing. Yeah. Let's get into some tunes or else we'll just crush this bottle. I know exactly. You're just like, well. Get anywhere else. <laughs> um, what should we start with? What do you think we should listen to first? I don't know. Maybe we start with the person that's the oldest. Oh, so, okay. So well, Arvo. Arvo Parrott. This man is pretty popular. One of the most played classical composers uh, for a while there. And he's, uh, he was born in 1935. He's from Estonia. And Arvo Pert went through a period of time in the late 60s and early 70s, mid-70s, that he calls his years of crisis, where he, he still wrote music, but he didn't write very much. And then when he emerged from that period, he had formulated a new style of composition. And based off of how bells ring... Because when you hear a bell ring, you hear the tone, the struck, the note that's yep. you heard when you strike it, but you also hear all these other sounds from that bell called overtones. Mm-hmm. And so this is how he has conceived of his music since the 70s, basically. And what is this when you're referring to that? Is that the tintinabuli? Yes, tintinabuli. Yes. Okay. Which is basically Latin for bells, the ringing of bells. Okay. I yeah. wondered what it translated to. Okay. Uh, yeah. Some, something along those lines. Yeah. Some, something to do with the way bells ring. So there are a lot of pieces that demonstrate that really, really well. And I um, hysterically didn't really pick a piece that demonstrates that really, really well. So maybe we should just listen for a moment to a piece like uh, for Alina which is, I think, maybe one of the first pieces he he wrote after that time period. So let's go ahead and listen to just a, a 30 seconds of that or so, if that's okay. And then we'll listen to this other piece that I really love of his. It's a two-page piece, by the way, that you can look up online. And for you piano players that you want to play classical music but don't think you can, huh. it looks it looks like it's possible. Yeah. Sometimes you look at other things and you're like, well, I guess I'll just never be able to play that. So this is a little bit of for Alina by Arvo Pert. And it's a it's such a beautiful piece and you know, just all these sustained consonant tones that sound so lovely together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um so now that you know what that sounds like, let's go ahead and listen to Suma, which is a piece that he wrote in the late seventies, initially as a choral work, uh, but now we're going to hear it done by a string orchestra and a lot of Parrot's music can be swapped out like that for different ensembles, which makes it refreshing because you can listen to you know, the same music in different ways and hear different things about it. It's really neat. But we'll listen to the string orchestra version of Summa by Arvo Pert, written in 1977 and then reworked for orchestra sometime after that. (laughs) 
So is there something like pastoral about this? Because it seems like uh, when I think of Sibelius and the country, it reminds me of the countryside. And so is there anything about this that is pastoral? Usually when we say the word pastoral in music, it refers to a pretty specific sound of like, maybe there's a drone in the bass and something in a major key. And you can kind of envision elves dancing about the forest and stuff. Something like this, I see where you're coming from because, in fact, all the music that we're going to hear today is so tied to place. So maybe instead of pastoral, it, it maybe it reminds me of like when I think of Sibelius, I don't think of a landscape like up at my cabin. I think yeah. of like the Finnish countryside. Yeah. So is that is there something that is like tied to, like maybe this is the Estonian countryside, but at the same time. There's this, there's this national air and the whole, you know, minor key situation. I mean, mm -hmm. is that a product of, I mean, let's face it, Estonia has a, a pretty dark history as of, as of late. And, yeah. um, you know, is, is there any sort of truth to that, do you think? That I wouldn't be surprised. You know, again, as I mentioned, those crisis years that he, he has said from 1968 to uh, 74 or whenever it was. I mean, this piece was written not long after that. So you can really kind of maybe read into the bleakness of it a little. Um, but I think what's really important to note about the music that we're going to hear today is really how truly nationalistic it is. Because these composers are definitely writing music that's so tied to a place. Like, we'll hear from an Icelandic composer in a moment, and there's just no way that that music could be written anywhere else by anyone else. Truth. Terroir. Terroir-driven terroir. music is Terroir-driven music, exactly. That's exactly what we're hearing today. And Arvo Peretz's music, you hear that. Um, he's also a very spiritual person, Eastern Orthodox. So there are spiritual themes in his music. There's the overtones that we talked about with the sounds of the bells ringing and... There's a lot of that in his music as well. And I mean, that's very tied to place too. think of wine, you know, I think there's definitely this, like, there used to be a, a national way to look at things, right? There was, like, when you said French wine, or even you could distill it maybe a little bit further down to regional, it was like it meant X, it meant Y. And nowadays, what's so fun about wine and confusing, and I've mentioned this before months ago on, on our podcast, that frustrating for up-and-coming sommeliers is like you taste this and you don't know where the heck this is from. Like you really couldn't be pressed to say this is from Maryland, A. You could maybe think that there's piquette in it, but you'd have no idea that, you know, the Vidal Blanc is what's bringing that kind of white gummy bear quality to the mix. Neat. It's also when they need to, they will – so acidify – is I think a it's a very blasphemous term in the world of wine because it means you're natural wine I should say because you're adding acid to something to make it have a lower pH mm -hmm. not cool in this case they have acidulated or acidified this with 
if they need to, not all the time, but with verjus, which verjus is basically the juice of unripe grapes. Very popular in cooking, very oh. popular in like Turkey, Northern Africa, certain parts of Europe, Australia even to, to you know, add as an adornment to deglaze your, your pan because um, you add a ton of you, some fruit, a little bit of fruit, but a lot of acidity. So if they need to, if this is blousy in any way, they'll just add a little bit of verju that they've made. Yeah. Which is, some people would say, well, wait, that's not natural wine. Well, wait, you are adding your own verju. Yeah. You're like mixing that together. You're not right. like it's not packeted yeast from another country or Yeah, or pack someone or else's grape acid. juice. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or someone else's that's a great point. Someone else's grape juice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about, you know, wine is kind of a uh, I think a really fun place right now that's natural wine, especially that's not really nationalistic in a way that it's sort of everybody's experimenting and having fun and and like doing really cool things with with very noble varietals like Tempranillo and Cabernet. But on the on the flip side, like I see this label and it says blinded by the light. And I'm like, well, that's a Bruce Springsteen song, but it doesn't tell me anything about what the heck's in the label until it's the back label. But I guarantee you in 2020, if they make a wine again, I'm pretty sure that it'll say blinded by it'll be the same label, right? If they want to yeah. make the same wine. I wanted to talk about a guy by the name of Scott Schultz. His yes. winery is called Jolie Lid uh, out of Sebastopol, California. And what I think is so cool about Scott is his wines are magnificent. I've had them vintage in, vintage out. He doesn't have any temperature control in his cellar. He's, you know, using native yeasts and for the most part doesn't filter. But his wines will come into the shop. It'll be a new vintage. And I won't know what it is and I'll be like, whether it's the shop I'm working at or the bar I'm working at, I'll be like, oh, what what is this? This is a cool new wine. And sometimes I look at the label and I'm like, I don't really love that label. Other times I'm like, wow, it's a cool label. And here they're all they're all his wines. Every year, Scott elects a different artist to showcase his, you know, sometimes right around a dozen wines. And so that means his North Coast Syrah or his Malone de Bourgogne or his Red Blend Every single year you go to buy that, it's going to have a new label that looks totally different. Like one year it's going to be a collage, and the next year it's going to be some abstract painting. It's going to be photography the next year. And when I asked him, why do you – this is like not brand recognition. Like I don't care, but like how are you trying to like sell your wine? And he's like, you know, I love art. eh? I want a label that stimulates people that are buying it. But I also – every year the vintage is different. So good point. If if every year I think my Syrah is gonna yeah it's gonna have a profile but it's gonna taste a little different. My, yeah. My um, rosé is gonna be a little bit different. My Gamay is gonna be a little different. Why wouldn't the label be different? Which is like crazy. So this yeah. year, 2019, Scott has paired up with an amazing artist, Kate Scott, who literally takes digital pixel photography, scans them, and pixelates them and enlarges those. Pixel by pixel. So what you see on in in this vintage, this case, they're all different flowers that represent what Scott thinks the color and the taste, flavor, and all that, and what represents the wine the most. A dahlia looks more like a dahlia than a dahlia <laughs> you see. So when you look at his label, you're like, 
wow, that's an intense flower, even maybe more so than if you were walking in a conservatory, which that's a very, I think, quite a new idea that has not really been deeply explored, especially in the United States. And so hats off to Scott for bucking the system, as it were, and keeping things fresh and, you know, promoting a love of art and supporting artists, which is, you know, in wine, not a lot of times a priority. Right. And he makes great wine. And his wines are delicious. So win-win. And I'll put I'll put different vintages and who the artists were. And for the most part, his wines sell out every year, so it's really hard to find back vintages of them. Um, so you'll likely only find, you know, 2019s, 2018s floating around the country. But mm-hmm. I don't know, once in a while you can have some luck. Nice. So, cool. Who's who's up next in the listen department? Um, let's listen to some Osvaldo Golihoff, who's from Argentina. He was born in 1960. And he has a somewhat questionable reputation in terms of getting work done, but that's neither here nor there. That's what I was going to ask, but I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we're going to listen to um, a piece he wrote for a special, well, not a special, but a specific singer. Her name is Dawn Upshaw, and she's a soprano. She's an American singer. And uh, Golioff has written for her numerous times, and um, she... She's always been one of my personal favorites. I got the, such an exciting experience to interview her on stage a number of years ago, and she's just a wonderful human being. She's Incredible. a wonderful human being. They were both born in this early yeah, 60s, 1960. Right? Yeah, 1960, okay. yeah. Don Upshaw also has a, has a fun um, connection to the Twin Cities Metro because she has spent time working with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Uh, That's an organization here in, obviously, in St. Paul that brings in artistic directors for uh, a year at a time as opposed to having a a consistent conductor. And so they'll work with these artistic partners who will then program shows and all that. And so Don Upshaw did that uh, in the 2000s with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. So she's long been a favorite of mine, and and hearing this music that Osvaldo wrote for her uh, is so beautiful and just highlights the brilliance, uh, um, brightness, and beauty of her voice. So he wrote a piece um, called Three Songs for Soprano and Orchestra, and actually one of the pieces, the second movement, the second of the three songs, I should say, was actually written in the late 90s, but this piece was put together um, in the 2000s. So we'll listen to the second mo- the second song then because that's what was specifically written for her before he then collected these three together, if that makes sense. so. And I just wanted to point out, which I think is really fascinating because we're so used to, especially here on Scores and Boards, we talk about something that's got two movements, four movements, five movements. But they all, if they have a name, they're all in the same language. We rarely talk about opera on the on the show, but if we do, it's like, all in Italian or all in German. Yeah. The first movement is in Yiddish. The yeah. second movement is in Gallego, which if you speak Spanish or you are from Spain, you'll know Gallego is the language of the Galicians or the Gallegos. And I think out of, I hesitate to say this because all of my Spanish friends from all over the continent will, I'll hear about this, I'll just say that. But Gallego is so beautiful and so steeped in folklore and the way it sounds, the one that Emily just said, it's called Lua Descolorida, which Lua is the Spanish word for Luna, or excuse me, the Galician word for Luna, and Descolorida, the discolored moon, and just the way 
she sings, she brings out Galician in a way I've just never heard brought out. And then the third is the third movement is done in English, mm-hmm. which is so it, if you listen to them all back to back, they all sound so different. Very Argentine, like very dramatic, yeah. which is like his jam. But the, they all just them being in different languages just adds a different distinctive air. Yeah. So. All right. So this is the, that second one, Lua Descolorido. So good. It's so pretty. Do you mind if we listen to just like the first 15 seconds, 20 seconds of the first movement? Because oh, no, it's love also to. like it's so different. Yeah, you can tell why it's grouped together, but it's also, yeah. it's just very, at the minute I heard it, I was like, well, this sounds like an Argentinian. Like, <laughs> yes. he made this. You know, like it could have been in so many different, and I love Argentine film, and so it reminds me of so many, so many different film scores that Neat. I've heard. So, This is called Night of the Flying Horses. I mean, this part doesn't sound Argentine, let's be honest, but when the the actual (laughs) ensemble comes in. Drama. Yeah. The other thing I love about the way he writes this music is he does give plenty of opportunity for orchestral instruments to shine. Osvaldo Gullihoff. Well, I don't really have much to talk about on the wine front again. Do you mind if we just jump to our last composer? Oh my gosh, no. Oh, this one has, this is amazing to me. Um, This is the youngest composer on our list. 
She was born in 1977, so she's younger than me. Um, and she is from Iceland, and her name is Anna Thorvaldsdotir. Thor Thorvaldsdotir. 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 Yes. We've listened to her say it a hundred times. Thorvaldsdotir. That's good. Yes, that's good. Anna is, uh, I can only uh, just say I've, I've spent a lot of time listening to podcasts that she's on and just listening to a bunch of her music and... She does not think about music the way you or I think about music. She had to be taught how to talk about music because she didn't have a vocabulary. She thinks of music in sound. She doesn't think of music in words. She's from Iceland. It's, I mean, like, like, let's think about how many <laughs> musical geniuses do we have now? Like five, and one of them is Bjork. Yeah, I like, know. So. Like two, and two of them are from Iceland. <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, it, it really is uh, remarkable to me to hear her talk because she grew up in a town of about two thousand people. I mean, super tiny town, a couple hours away from Reykjavik, and um, ended up coming to the states to study. Eventually, I think after her undergrad, um, and really just kind of literally had to develop a way to verbally talk about her music. I mean, just from, it, it's remarkable to me. And this piece that she wrote, first of all, her music and, and a lot of music in the 20th and 21st century that's written for stage can be described as, you know, has a lot to do with texture. It's composers taking an ensemble, taking a, a, a tool in an orchestra, taking a tool that's been used for hundreds of years and trying to create new sounds with it, right? Trying to be innovative, trying to come up with something to tell a new story, to say something new, mm -hmm. which is what we've been talking about today. And um, she's done that in tremendously unique ways with opera, with um, keyboard music, just instrumental and electronic. She uses does hybrid writing. And anyway, this piece, Metacosmos, is probably her one of her more traditional pieces. Um, I wonder if it's pronounced Metacosmos. It definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> and she has said that this piece uh, highlights the struggle between beauty and chaos. And I could not agree more. This is not background music. This you you can't put this on in the background and walk away and expect to get anything from it. This is music to be listened to, and that's special in in a way. And you can say that about Haydn too. But I also can clean my house while I'm listening to Haydn. I'm not going to clean my house while I'm listening to Metacosmos. You know what I mean? True. So it starts with a drone just raging away and and then she just brings in all these beautiful glorious elements to it she brings in beautiful melodies the percussion starts rocking about halfway through and the, the uh, there's innovative ways of using instruments that not that she invented but um you know there's lots of string slides there's harmonics there's uh, horn players blowing air through their instruments to create a, a kind of a whooshing sound uh, at one point, there's a percussionist playing a cymbal that's laid on top of a bass drum, so he's banging the cymbal, but it's being resonated through a big giant bass drum. I mean, there's just a lot of cool stuff in this piece. So let's just listen to a bit, then we'll skip around some. Is that cool? Icelanders.
happens for a minute or two. There's a video of the Iceland Symphony Orchestra playing this. I highly recommend it be, to, that you watch it because um, you know you can just you can see the instruments doing the things they're doing to create these sounds. It's really really neat. You can also see the conductor conducting in a very traditional style. He's not like just standing there and pointing. He's marking beats. marking beats and stuff. This all kind of builds into a very beautiful chord, cluster chord. So these extremes of very, very high piccolo, very, very low basses and contrabassoon. make mention of how hard it is for these multiple instruments to have to like dive down or dive up together because they can't like hear them blowing through their instruments Mm -hmm. (sighs) sorry badass but just that they're not a lot of these aren't trombones right so they don't have Mm -hmm. the notes that don't exist between notes but the fact that they're all trying to create those notes with their embouchure here comes that chord to do it without being out of tune, sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, that's a beautiful place to land after four and a half minutes of ambiguity in a lot of ways. people, let's be honest, if you can't find me, I'm in Haiti um, making Claren slash rum agricole or I'm in Iceland for music. Yeah. <laughs> Haiti. <laughs> Haiti or Iceland. One of the two. <laughs> Probably Haiti because it's warmer. So yeah, let's listen to a little bit when the percussion come in. the end let's talk about the end please because i i think the end is really beautiful how um there's this basically 
big slide up and ends with violin on a very high note, and it's very poignant and beautiful. Well, I don't even want to talk about anything else. That's course and course. That basically just did that. There's a lot of really great music being written out there. It's not all just about Bach and Beethoven, you know? Well, and it's not all about top 40. Right. Like the newcomers out there or the people that are, you know, of of kind of born in the 70s, 80s, 50s. Like if, if people dig deep, you can find some... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, this is on my palate. That's all. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to say that much. Scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with myself, Jill Mutt, and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.